We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Rereading, rereading our favorite books. But we, we should probably actually start the podcast itself and then get back to fighting with each other about other things after. Yes, we should do this before I die of this disease. So the silver chair. I mean, I guess it's your turn to intro. Yes. Yeah. It is my my turn. So Go. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Reread, the podcast where we really get progressively committing more and more to the awkward introduction. I don't think we're ever going to get natural. I think we've just decided it's going to be that awkward. Hello. Welcome to Reread. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. Anyhow, this week... The Silver Chair. Silver Chair. The dumbest title of any of these books. Really? Yeah. Which title would you say is worst? I mean, I guess. I think that Prince Caspian is just a boring title. Yes. I feel like maybe something more could have been done there. But I guess you're right. In terms of like titles, probably Silver Chair and Prince Caspian are my least favorite titles. Now, the question is, is this book your least favorite book? That is the question. We really won't know for sure until we read The Last Battle. But yeah, this this was my least favorite. And Holy No, no, no. I mean, like, when I was a kid. Oh! oh. <laughs> wow, you really, really jumped that. I think that it's interesting because I, I truly did not remember anything about this book because I hated it as a child and therefore, like, did not reread it ever. And so had, like, no memories. And then... Uh, I texted you about this, but like, there was truly one moment in this book where I was like, oh, I remember exactly why I hated this book. And it just all rushed back at me. And I was like, I fully understand. But yeah, turns out that the reason why I hated this book was uh, Puddle Glum. No. I just hated him so much as a kid. No. I really, truly thought he was obnoxious as a child. It, it just all came back to me, my loathing for him. And I feel not loathing about him now. I will tentatively say I kind of liked him, but I feel like I was reading his lines and there was just really this like deja vu, but like deja vu with a tinge of hatred. So it was very hard to like separate this thing that kept coming back from his character but uh yeah i'm I'm curious because you remembered nothing about this book either right yes i remembered nothing what did you think i loved puddle glum i <laughs> loved him so much he is my favorite i don't think this book is very good and we'll we'll get into that but puddle glum is definitely the saving grace for this book as well as all the uh, <laughs> uh, sexual innuendo that's present in this book. It's definitely the sexiest of the Chronicles of Narnia. For example, Aslan says to Jill, quote, I will blow you as I blew Eustace. <laughs> what? Then Jill, upon seeing Eustace again, the first thing she thought was how very grubby and untidy and generally unpressive he looked. And the second was, how wet I am. Oh my god. I thought you were talking about, like, 
actual innuendo. Oh, no, no, <laughs> Instead no. of just like lines totally out of context. This is the best line of all. Quote, she made love to everyone. The grooms, the porters, the housemaids, the ladies in waiting, and the elderly giant lords. Yes, that was what I like. <laughs> sort of thing I thought you were talking about. Oh, and and my favorite. This this actually is my favorite because it gets back to uh, the low key bestiality that happens in these books. Quote: He gave Aslan the strong kisses of a king, and Aslan gave him the wild kisses of a lion. The book is very sexy. I think uh, it's missing its demographic of middle aged suburban moms i think they would really gravitate you know along with this new 365 show or whatever they should just read this book in tandem because no, 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 no. this is this is hitting the neckbeard fantasy <laughs> men audience of sexy let's be real here suburban moms have more taste there's bondage in this book we see a prince get tied up to a chair oh my yeah, okay. The whole relationship between the prince and the green witch, or whatever we're calling her. Okay, wait, I feel like we, we're, we're getting too into it. We need to summarize this quickly. Please do. Our main character is Jill, someone we've never met before, but she goes to school with our old friend Eustace, who I guess is doing better this book. Glad for him. And uh, they're getting picked on because their school is a miserable, awful place full of bullies. So Eustace, to cheer Jill up, tells her about Narnia. And he's like, let's ask Aslan if we can go to Narnia right now, because that would be really nice. So they do. And uh, lo and behold, <laughs> they get taken to Narnia. And they just, instead of actually going into Narnia itself first, they actually, we find out, end up in Aslan's country. Crazy. And they like go to the giant cliff that we see at the end of Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And Jill decides to be brave and stand at the very, very edge. And Eustace, turns out he's afraid of heights, which, like, weird, he was a dragon. He's like, get back. <laughs> get back from that. She's like, no, I refuse. <laughs> and basically, in some kerfuffle, she knocks Eustace over the cliff. <laughs> this is, like, 20 pages in, and we have unintentional murder. But this is when Aslan blew Eustace. Yes. He Blows Eustace into the <laughs> the distance. Literally blows wind. And Eustace just flies away. Anyhow, Asla gets pissed at Jill because uh, she did unintentionally almost murder someone. Yeah, you know. And he's like, look, I brought you here for a reason. The King of Narnia is dying and his son, the prince, is missing. You and Eustace need to go find him and bring him back. And he gives her like a series of steps. That as long as she follows them, she'll be able to, like, find the prince. They're pretty simple, but she seems to have a little bit of difficulty remembering them. Like, the first one is that they'll meet an old friend. Yes. The first person that Eustace sees will be an old friend, and he needs to, like, go up and talk to them immediately. The second sign is that they will go to an ancient city of the giants. The third is that they will find and follow some kind of writing yes that's at that city and the fourth is that when they meet the prince he will invoke the name of aslan and that's how they'll know that they found the right person 
like you can tell, pretty easy to memorize. Yes. Like, pretty simple. <laughs> yes. We both got that. I don't have notes on it. I just remembered it. We were not reading that. It's it's pretty, it's pretty clear. So anyhow, but she has some difficulty because she's a child. And then Aslan's like, all right, I will now send you the same way I sent Eustace with my breath. She's like, chill. So then he blows her into the air and she floats all the way to Narnia and gets there like two seconds after Eustace because Aslan, I guess, put more force into his breath. (laughs) And, And it takes like... She literally is flying through the air for like five, six pages, at least in my version. And it's, <laughs> I don't know, I was getting a kick out of it because it's just like, how how is it possible to make this scene boring? Because C.S. Lewis manages to do it. Well, I, I kind of liked it because we get to see all of the islands that we saw in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And like, that's kind of cool. And uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> they get back there. Jill tells Eustace the thing, but Eustace, understandably, is a little mad at her for almost murdering him. And he's like, I don't know anyone here. I don't know what the f*** you're talking about. Blah, blah, blah. Turns out, actually, they're like overlooking this scene of this old king getting onto a boat. Turns out, that was Caspian. He needed to go talk to Caspian. Caspian's old now. No! I ain't old like you! I ain't old! I ain't old! They discover this after going down to speak to, again, Trumpkin rolling back up, who's still regent and also mostly deaf at this point, which might be a good reason for Caspian to think of another regent, but okay. So they discover that Caspian has decided to sail off to try and find or talk to Aslan and figure out what's going on with his son. They, uh, the kids are kind of informed about this by an owl, who says specifically not to mention anything about the quest to go find the prince because, like, a shit ton of people have died on this quest, and if they informed Trumpkin, Trumpkin would stop them from going to try and save their lives. Because he's a responsible adult who doesn't send their kids on deadly quests. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, basically they're told that what happened with the prince was that he was out one day with his mom 10 years ago, which by the way, okay, in the timeline of this, it's been... What is it, like 70 years or something since something Voyage of the Dawn Treader? like that, maybe? Maybe 50 years? It's It's been a long time. Decades, right? But this, the prince disappearing, only happens 10 years ago. Which means that for some reason, Caspian, who met his wife at the end of Voyage of the Dawn Treader, didn't have a kid with her for decades. Mm. Which makes no sense. Maybe he needed more guidance from Aslan, because clearly Aslan knows how to get freaky. I'm just saying that, like, it seems like Caspian was, like, in his 50s or something by the time he had a kid, which means his wife was probably also in her 50s, so they were roughly the same age. And, like, that doesn't make sense. But okay. They Also, I, I question, because isn't she supposed to be a star lady? Well, she's the daughter of a star. I don't know if that means that she herself is starish at all. Those imbeciles. Haven't they got any eyes? Have they forgotten what a star looks like? Does this mean that Prince Rinian is like quarter starish? Yes, quarter starish. I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) the point is, (laughs) 10 years ago, the prince, who is a young man at this point, goes out with his mom and uh, his mom gets bitten by this giant green snake. And dies. Uh, and he tries to, like, track down the snake, kill it. He's not able to. 
he keeps going out to do this. And then uh, at some point, Lord Dinian, I don't know how to say his name. Drinian, I think. Who, again, was in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's like, hey, you seem like really preoccupied. Like, what's going on? And the person's like, I'm actually no longer hunting the snake. I've just met this really hot woman wearing a green dress. And that's kind of what's occupying my time right now. And Lord Drinian goes with him and sees this lady and is like, mm, should I be telling Caspian about this? Yeah, probably, but, like, I don't want to betray my friend's trust. And unfortunately for him, the next day, the prince goes out to meet with the lady and doesn't come back. And he's like, but should have told Caspian. Oh, well. Anywho, so uh, the owl tells uh, the kids this. Then the owl spirits them out of the castle. I actually think the story was told after they're spirited out. Doesn't matter. And they meet with the whole Congress of Owls. Parliament of Owls. Parliament. Sorry. I Americanized it. You dumb, dumb American. Whatever. <laughs> Anywho, the owls are the ones who hook up the kids with Puddleglum, who is a marshwiggle who you really <sighs> like. So. Oh, I love Puddleglum. I love him so much. Yeah, so like a marshwiggle, I don't I don't know fully how to like describe them. It's like a man frog combo this is the best way to put it yeah they have like long legs and arms short torsos they're like greenish i think or muddy yeah. looking and there's like some webbing on the fingers and toes and, and they're described by other people as like froggish in nature and i guess another trait of them is that they are all just so wonderfully pessimistic there's a great line later, actually, where Puddleglum is considered by his peers to be overly optimistic. We are introduced to this character by having him ask, what kind of disaster has happened? Has the king died? Has there been an earthquake? Has there been some kind of disaster that's murdered a bunch of people? And I knew instantly that I was in love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so they meet with Puddleglum. And Puddleglum agrees to take them on the quest. Um, he says that they'll probably fail and die, and <laughs> that will be, you know, good for him because he's really far too cheerful, and this will make him see the truth of the world. So uh, they set off on their way. There's lots of traveling. <laughs> they travel into the land of the giants. There's more traveling, and then they end up going over this bridge, and they run into a lady in a green dress and her silent knight. And she, they tell her that they are looking for this ruined city of the giants, and she's like, oh, well, you know, I don't know about that, but I do know about this city with really, really nice giants where you can have a nice warm bath and sleep on a nice soft bed and eat some nice warm food and Puddleglum is like I don't trust this lady I don't trust anyone or anything and I'm very depressed <laughs> and the kids are like we want baths we want beds we want food what do we want head scratches when do we want them so they set off for this non-ruined giant city and end up stumbling around in, like, snow a lot. Like, they're just really traversing in the worst weather conditions ever. 
And they get to the city, and uh, they tell them that the green lady sent them for, like, what is it, their autumn feast or something? And the giants are like, oh, we're so glad to have you. They put them up in, like, really nice rooms. They give them nice clothes and kind of treat them like babies, which, like, fair. They're both children and much smaller than the giants. Then Jill has this dream about Aslan, like, taking her out and showing her, like, words he's written in the ground. And she forgets about it, but luckily, after she wakes up, Eustace and Puddleglum come and visit her, and they happen to look out the window, and then they see that written... Wow, I should have written down what the f*** is written. (laughs) Isn't it, like, under me? Yeah, under me. Under me is written in the ground, and that actually they're at the ruined giant city, sort of, and they're like... Oh, we should have known because they had actually ended up stumbling into one of the letters the previous night because it's in like written in the ground. They'd fallen into one of the letters and they were like, if we had just not been so eager to get baths and food and beds, we would have known. Which, like, I'm not actually sure about that because you do have to be kind of above it to read what it says, but okay. Whatever. (laughs) We'll go with it. So they're like, all right. The giants seem really happy to have us, and they might not want to let us go, so we'll have to sneak out. And in the process of sneaking out, they're down in the kitchen and discover that when the giants said they wanted to have them for the autumn feast, they wanted to literally consume them. It's like that classic Twilight Zone episode where benevolent aliens show up and they're going to take a bunch of humans back to their planet, and they have this, this book that nobody knows what it is and they're trying to like translate it and the aliens say it's like oh it's the key to peace or whatever and all the humans are buying into it and then at the very end as the main character of the episode is being led onto a ship his lady friend shows up and yells out dude don't go on there it's not a book of how to make peace to serve men It's too late. He's ushered onto the ship and presumably gets eaten. Good stuff. I haven't seen that one. Oh, it's a great one. I love it so much. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> so they then uh, even more urgently sneak out. They are spotted when they're sneaking out, but luckily they manage to run and get underground and block up the entrance behind them before they can be caught and devoured. So. They're now underground, and they don't get very far before they run into some kind of creature who immediately is like, you have to be taken to see, see the ruler of these lands. And so they're, they're taken through like a city, and it's all very dreary, and like everyone's very depressed, and they all kind of like say the same things. It's very creepy. It weirdly reminded me a little bit of like Wizard of Oz and like the Wizard of the West land. Uh, I don't know why I got those vibes so hard, but it was definitely the vibes I was getting. Anyhow, it turns out the ruler isn't there, so they're instead taken to see this young man, who turns out to be the silent knight they'd run into before, and he's kind of, like, obnoxious. Yeah, not so silent now, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's just very talkative and just kind of laughs at everything. Like, very much one of those people who doesn't take anything seriously. And he's like... Oh, yeah, like, my queen is so, she's so awesome. She saved me. I have no memory of what was my life before her. But, like, she found me and she saved me. 
and she's going to make me king of this land overhead. Like, currently she has her people working to, like, burrow tunnels under the ground so that, like, we can erupt out and conquer this land, and then she's going to make me king, and that's going to be great. And also, like, she protects me because I'm cursed. He also mentions that, like, they're going to get married or whatever. Oh, yes, yes. And, and there's, like, some weird incest vibes, too, because, like, there's one point where he refers to their relationship as, like, a mother and a child, but consistently says they're going to get married. It's very... Yeah. It is has a lot of, like, dark, weird sexual vibes going on. Yeah. Especially because he's cursed, and apparently for one hour every day... He, like, goes insane and then will, like, turn into a snake. And so he has to be tied to the silver chair in order to stop this process from happening. Now, pretty much everyone reading this book has figured out by now this is the prince. For some reason, the actual people living out this story have not yet. (laughs) But okay. So the time comes for this guy to have his little magical curse, whatever. And so he's like, look, you probably shouldn't stay because I will just go completely insane. And like, I'll tell you all these things and you can't let me up no matter what. But also I would really like, it's just so nice to have people here. I'm I'm alone. It'd be really nice to have some company. So they're like, okay, we'll stay. We've got like nothing else to do. We're prisoners here. So they go through this whole thing so that no one else realizes they're in the room. And then uh, gets tied up to the silver chair. And sure enough, as soon as, like, the curse takes hold, he starts demanding that they free him. And he says, like, this is actually, like, the one time of day that I'm sane. I'm actually the Prince of Narnia. This woman's, like, I'm not sure if he says all of this straight up. But, like, at some point, he's, like, in the name of Aslan, let me go. They're, like, oh, we did promise not to let him go. But we are now know he's the prince. So I guess we'll have to take our chances. They release him from the chair. The prince then demolishes the chair. Because that, I guess, was what was keeping the curse on him. And he's like, thanks. I'm now free. (laughs) (laughs) It really is extremely anti. And that's why I like I hate this title. Because the silver chair, it's a minor detail in this whole story. This is the first time we see it. It's the last time we see it. It's immediately destroyed. It does not matter. It's not the most important detail of this story. Like, literally just naming the story Prince Rinian would have made more sense. Yeah, or like the Green Lady. That's a good one. Or like Fifty Shades of Aslan. I don't know. Anything else (laughs) would have been interesting. (laughs) So, speaking of the Green Lady. Indeed. She shows up in full bondage gear. I'm just kidding. That's not true. But she does saunter in. She does come in and she's like, um, what is going on? (laughs) And then like puts some stuff in the fire. And then like, does she, I'm so sorry. I did not take good enough notes. Does she start like playing a flute or something? What is she doing? she, She throws some, some weed into the fire. So they all get baked. And then she she starts strumming on like some stringed instrument. Uh, so she's playing some rock and roll, literally sex, drugs, and rock and roll uh, to hypnotize everyone and basically gaslight them into believing that the overworld, as it's called, does not exist. There's no such thing as Narnia. 
No such thing as Prince Rinian. No such thing as Aslan. Right. And they all kind of take turns bringing up points to try and resist this. But then she keeps... If she does this really interesting thing where she'll be like, but what is that? And then they'll try and explain it using like metaphors and similes. And she'll be like, but it can't be real if you can only describe it using other things. Which is like... Not a good argument, but also an impossible argument to argue against, right. if that makes sense. And so they keep getting discouraged, and this this keeps going back and forth until finally, I think Puddle, yeah, it's Puddle Glum, My right? man Puddle Glum yeah. saves the day. He stomps on the fire to like put out the sweet-smelling stuff, and that gives them enough strength to fully resist it. And then the green lady turns into the green snake. Because oh. no, she, oh. she is the one who killed Prince Ridian's mom. Who would have thought? And then all three of the men swing swords at her and they manage to vanquish her. Yeah, they chop her head off. I guess that concludes negotiations. Yeah, so she's dead now. And this is when all hell breaks loose. Basically, she's set up a thing so that, like, if she gets killed, the city gets flooded. And so they try and escape. Their escape is somewhat hampered by the fact that it seems like all of the citizens have, like, gone crazy. But it turns out, actually, that they were imprisoned by the Green Lady, which is probably why I got, like, Wicked Witch of the West vibes, right? It's like the same right. thing happens with the flying monkeys. But... Yeah, they were all imprisoned by her, and now they're free, and they can go back to the even even more underworld <laughs> than they're at right now, because they like living really deep. So deep. So, so deep. Aye. And one of them, who ends up being their guide to try and get them back to Narnia and the surface, is like, hey, like, do you, do you guys want to see the super underworld? We've never taken, like, overhead people there before, so, like, do you want to come? Jill is like, no. <laughs> but... <laughs> Ridian's like, oh, exploration, though. I, I don't know if I can say no to that. And Eustace, in actually a very cute moment, is like, you know, my friend Reepicheep would say we definitely should. And I was like, Reepicheep would. But also, like, Reepicheep's judgment is not always good judgment. So, like, maybe take that into account. Finally, uh, Jill is able to prevail and be like, please, let's leave. Um, and they decide not to go to the super underworld. And it doesn't matter anyway, because like this hole that they're staring into seconds later starts closing up and all the the gnomes skydive into it and they're just left alone. Yeah. So eventually they make their way back to the surface. No deep, no more deep. And in Narnia, luckily, which was the land that the Green Lady was going to conquer for the Prince of Narnia. So really for herself. And they rush to get Rinian back to, like, cap the capital, because it turns out Caspian has, like, turned his ships around because he got a message from Aslan that he needed to come back and he would find his son. So they rush back and get there as he's arriving. But he's, like, he's uh, in bad shape, in real bad shape. And basically Rinian gets to, like, exchange a few words with him and then Caspian dies. And uh, then... Love it. <laughs> Jill and Eustace are, like... Can we please leave now? Like, I want to go home. So they get whisked back to Aslan's country. And Aslan's there. And also, like, Caspian's body's there now. But he's magically youthified and then springs up and he's like, Hey, 
Eustace. Let's say how he's magically youthified because Aslan says to Eustace, go grab a thorn in the woods and poke my hand with it. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. So they do that and the blood goes into the river and he's rejuvenated in this clear analogy to, yeah, you know. Yeah. You can't get through this book without at least one one reference to Aslan as Jesus. So that was the uh, the quota for this book. Yeah. Which generally actually doesn't have very much Christianity. Yeah, I know. But yeah, so then Caspian and the kids are like chatting for a little bit. And he's like, you know, Aslan, I've like always really wanted to see the world that these guys come from. Can I go see it? And Aslan's like... Yes, you can, because you can help them beat up their bullies. <laughs> so poor Caspian, you you think about it. He really wanted to see this world. And Aslan's like, yes, you can go see this miserable school. And the only thing you're allowed to do there is beat up some children, which like wild. And uh, that's that's the end of this book. That is literally the end. One of the worst, in my opinion. I, here, I'm going to put money on this. Because I know we still have the last battle and saying that this is the worst ending of any of the books. It definitely the worst ending line. It is just so boring. I mean, the ending line is fine. It is not fine. It is so dumb. <laughs> the ending line, they're talking about how, like, you know, back in Narnia, this underground that the kids were romping through has now been turned into like they do cave tours there now and people go down there to go sailing in the underground lake and whatever and then it ends with quote if ever you have the luck to go to narnia yourself do not forget to have a look at those caves end quote so <laughs> you prefer them fine women yes I do, because that's stupid in a fun way. This is just stupid in a stupid way. Yeah, they're both bad in their own ways. The, the ending of Caspian beating up the children is just, I don't think anything can beat that for stupid endings. Like It is remarkably dumb. Yeah. I don't know. It's just that the last line is such a thud to this whole story. Uh, it's bad. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like everything after they are taken back to Aslan's country after they, like, see Caspian die. Everything after that is not good. Yeah. It should just end with them wanting to leave. It's really interesting because I did write this down. Like, other than Diggory, who wants to leave because he wants to get the apple back to his mom, therefore he has, like, literal incentive to go. This is the only time the children have actively been like, I don't want to be here anymore. Right, This was depressing yeah. and not fun. I want to leave. And I just do feel really bad for Jill because, like, she also comes back in the last battle with Eustace. <laughs> and, like, I think Jill gets the two, like, in terms of what happens to her, shittiest adventures. <laughs> like, no, maybe not in terms of the writing of the book, but in terms of the adventure she goes on. I really feel bad for Jill. What did Jill do to deserve this? She got to hang out the entire time with Puddleglum. And to me, there's no greater treat in this world than to be around Puddleglum. <sighs> anyway, before I supposed to start this discussion, you had texted me. And I think you mentioned at the start how you hated this book as a kid. 
And there was one line in particular that you read that brought it all back. And I'm very curious, what is that one line that that sent you spiraling? It was, I had completely forgotten Puddle Gold existed. So it was this line, which is on page 54 of my edition, is one of the owls, and they're deciding what to do with the kids. They're like, if they want to go that way, it is more. We must take them to one of the marsh wiggles. They're the only people who can help them much. And here is my note. Oh, f- <laughs> if I remember correctly, the marsh wiggles, why I hated this book. <laughs> it was literally like I had forgotten about the existence of this character, was reminded by that line. I was like, that's why. And it was just truly a rush of memory. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is funny because... I feel like if I, if I was writing this objectively, with none of my prior feelings coming back, I do actually think I would like... I I generally kind of like little depressed characters. You know, I love Eeyore. Like, that's kind of what he is. An Eeyore. End of the road. Nothing to do. And no hope of things getting better. Sounds like Saturday night at my house. And so I'm not sure why young me so despised him. Maybe just it was the gag was too much for me. You know, maybe just I felt like Clive leaned into it too much. I'm not sure. Unfortunately, I truly feel like I could not objectively read anything with him in it. Because it was like (laughs) this like, yeah, just residual feeling of knowing I had hated it. Mm. it's interesting because i feel like so much of this book is stuff that i feel like should appeal to me um there's a lot of like it really reminds me of some of the like quests and adventures like nights go on in the Ethereum legends the green lady especially is like feel very reminiscent of some of that stuff i really feel like i should have really enjoyed this book and i certainly will say i don't think it's it's my least favorite now what high praise you hear that pause <laughs> i feel like it beats horse and his boy because it's not hugely racist but it was interesting because i didn't have any nostalgia to make me feel like warm fuzzies about this book and i think that while there were parts that like i really enjoyed like i think probably my favorite scene was the um the scene with the green lady trying to like make them all forget other things existed. I thought that seems kind of cool. And I think maybe if they'd spent more time dealing with Rinian's curse and in the city and dealing with Green Lady and more of that stuff, maybe I would have liked it more. But I think I I couldn't really get there with this book. And I couldn't love Potoglum the way I think Potoglum deserves to be loved because that was like the one thing that like I did have residual feelings on. I agree with you about the Green Lady and and Prince Rinian's curse and 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 we'll get into that because I think for me at least that was the weakest part of this story. But I I do want to say about Puddleglum, I made the same connection to Eeyore. And the thing about me though is that I hate Eeyore. <laughs> I think Eeyore is so obnoxious in his depression, and I would argue. It doesn't seem, at least in my reading of it, Puddleglum doesn't seem depressed. 
he's very he definitely sees the worst of things and looks at everything pessimistically. And he's always talking about throughout the book, like one of the earliest things he says is that he's sure that this quest is going to end with everyone stabbing each other in the back because that's just how things go on adventures yeah. like this. I love that. It's not so much that he's depressed. This is just the way they see the world and the way they interpret the world. And I love it so much. And I, and I see what you mean. Maybe maybe C.S. Lewis does lean too hard into it because there's a later scene with the um the gnome when they C.S. Lewis, not funny person, keeps leaning into this joke about how the gnomes like, how can you possibly live in the overworld? Like, that's weird. We just thought that the reason you lived up there is because you couldn't figure out how to get down here. And he, oh man, he drives that joke into the ground. <laughs> and it's bad. And I and I think that if you're not vibing with this character, with, uh, with Puddleglum, 100%, like I was, that these jokes that he says really can be grating. So I'm not surprised if you're reading this as a kid. If you don't like the first joke, he says, you're never going to like this character because he does not change in his approach or his mindset. Except at the very end when they're all saying goodbye and Puddleglum's like talking about how like he injures his foot when he steps on the fire. He's talking about how they're going to have to cut his leg off. He's saying that like they'll probably never see each other again, blah, blah, blah. And Jill just overcome with affection for for him, hugs him around the neck, gives him a big old kiss on the cheek or whatever, and they say goodbye. And then Polyglum has a great line. Well, I wouldn't have dreamt of her doing that, even though I am a good looking chap. And like, that's probably the most positive thing he says in the whole book. I love how just completely unaware of how pessimistic he's being. It's delightful. I love him so much. Yeah, I think there are definitely moments I find it more charming than other moments. I think that what probably bothered me about it as a kid, and I went and found a line that sort of shows this, is that there are moments it's great because it's it's funny and it, it works against the situation. But then there are also moments where it's like, no matter what the kids say, they can't like make him realize a positive thing. And he seemed resistant to that. So like, for instance... He serves them this meal of eels, which, like, gross, but okay. And then it says, uh, When the meal came, it was delicious, and the children had two large helpings each. At first, the marsh wiggle wouldn't believe that they really liked it. And when they had eaten so much that he had to believe them, he fell back on saying that he would probably disagree with them horribly. And so it's like, you know how irritating it is, like, when you're trying to give someone a compliment, and, like, they will only, like, believe negative things. Uh -huh. And I think that that part was what I didn't enjoy about him and what I think can rub someone the wrong way about a character like this. Because, yeah, like, the line about them, like, probably all stabbing each other in the back was great <laughs> and has, like, excellent payoff, like, a few pages later when Jill used to start arguing. He's like, yep, they're already doing it. Look. What's the kind of person to say a toe to so? But you know what? A toe to so. And then that makes them have to not argue. So, like, there are definitely lines of his that I'm like, mm, good, love it, A+. plus. But then there's also parts where I'm like, ugh, just take the compliment, bruh. Yeah. He he also operates as the 
voice of reason throughout the book, which I think he's well suited for that. Because in that scene, when they're considering going into the down to the mole people world, by the way, I just want to note that in the last book, we talk about flat earth, you know, in this book, we get the the mole people conspiracy so Alex Jones must really love this series. This is a human. This is what we look like. This is what we act like. When they're considering going into the underground, the deep underground. So deep. So, so deep. Hey. Puddle Glum is basically like, you know, your father's probably dying right now. We should, we should hurry it up. So it's couched in his very negative insight. But he's always operating as the voice of reason. He's the one that's suspicious of the green lady. He's the one that's suspicious of the giants. And for the most part, his suspicions are always borne out. So it's kind of reinforced that when he speaks, you should probably listen to him. There's actually one moment that I liked where when they're first starting their journey and he says the Marsh Wiggle told them they would feel more comfortable if only they thought how very much colder it would be later on and further north. And that contrasts later with this kind of temptation that the green lady throws them. And I don't know. I thought there's like an interesting kind of through line about like hardship and pain and the value of those things in keeping you grounded. Mm. I don't know if it's if the narrative necessarily develops it enough to really make anything of it. But I thought it was a kind of interesting theme that was being suggested by the narrative of like the value of pain yeah i mean i think that there's definitely something about like relaxing and to sort of the cushiness of whatever is not good i mean that happens with the giants right and also like if they just kind of gave in to the green lady's spell that would also not be good like that that resistance and striving for something is an important part of life. So I, I do think that, yeah, I would agree the through line is there. You could say the theme is resistance isn't futile. Jeez, tough crowd. Catch the second part next week on Reread. See you then.